Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Health Matters with Laura Kopeck. I'm your host, Laura Kopeck. I am a traditional naturopath, functional nutritionist, health educator, coach, uh, genomic specialist. And recently, I had the pleasure of opening up my uh, episode to a Q&A. And so you're going to hear a lot of different uh, questions and answers in a live Q&A that we did uh, or previously recorded. And I hope you enjoy. This and other podcasts are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Nothing recorded here or any of my podcasts are a substitute for medical advice. Go for it. So I just kind of have questions on um, how do we get started on, you know, like testing and then how do we work through our genetic situation because we have a family that has a large amount of you know diabetes and high cholesterol high, high you know blood pressures and all that and it seems like it's the whole family especially um you know like our older generation now that we know better about how to work through it and better take care of ourselves and then now you know here's our generation the doctors are just putting everybody on all this medicine and i don't want to be on that medicine so what are some steps we can do to, because to, I'm, I'm sure I fall in the category um, of needing some help. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a really good question. So um, I'll just start by saying that we assume that diagnostic medicine is healthcare, and it really is acute disease management. And so the analogy I like to give is that when we go and see a, a doctor that um, treats in a traditional manner, we're going to see a plumber. And if we ask him a functional question or ask for functional help, we're asking the plumber to take a look at the breaker box and help us with our wiring. And plumbers and electricians don't really overlap unless you have a plumber that also you know, became an electrician. So I think as um, the general public, we need to understand that we're placing an unfair burden on a doctor when we need to be going and seeing a functional practitioner. And then there's a time and a place for those people to work hands in hand together. Um, there is usually, I find, a natural product that is going to help the body um, without the side effects of a medication. So there's even ways to support, um, I think you were talking about diabetes and 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 um, high cholesterol. The best thing when you're working with a functional practitioner like myself is to, you're going to have more success with supplements, with herbs of that nature. Um, when you come in on the early stages, um, things that have gotten really into a, a full blown disease, then it's going to be a slower process to get, the, and maybe more supplements to get the body regulated. So I think you also had a question about genetics, um, and that's a really interesting, it's a topic I'm really passionate about. We think because we're testing our genes that we're looking at something that is black and white and has no gray and no subjectivity to it. But there are certain genetic testing that has that, but the testing that most of us are doing um, direct to consumer is really looking at what is called genomics. And that is a variation on the base pair 
that will cause it to increase risk. Okay, so when we talk about diabetes, the person with a genetic, the genes, quote unquote, to diabetes, they don't have a genetic mutation that will give them diabetes. They have a genomic variation to the base pair, which leans their risk a little bit more in the direction of diabetes. Does that make sense? So when you have the risk for diabetes in the genomic testing that we have so far, it hasn't evolved to show the level of risk. That's called a polygenic risk score. And I do think in the next you know, decade or so, we'll see that kind of um, testing. So like when you take something like MTHFR, you're going to have some people um, have a greater risk for diabetes. Some people have a greater risk for heart disease. But basically, MTHFR means at some point, um, you might be prone to inflammation. And so it is the epigenetic piece. It is that the diet, lifestyle, all our choices are epigenetics. And they cause those genes to open or close in a, in a less inflammatory manner if we're proactive. Okay? Um, I do all kinds of testing. If you're wanting to know where to jump in with me personally, the best thing is just get that uh, initial consultation down. I can order traditional testing as well as functional testing. And I have a very, um, I've been doing genomics now for a really long time and even, you know, did some lectures at the university where I had my master's degree. So, um, okay, let's see. You can put your questions in the chat too, if that's helpful. Um, ah. So we've got a question there. Uh, input, can you give, please give input on eating for your blood type? Dr. Diadamo um, was one of the pioneers of uh, functional medicine. You know, he was doing food sensitivity testing early on um, when it was pretty unusual. And he came up with this theory that certain people with certain blood types, you know, he kind of looked at all the, the, these people that were coming in and having food sensitivity testing, and he tried to see if there was a commonality between any of them. And he came up with um, the blood type, that people with blood type A were going to statistically be more inclined to test food sensitivity-wise to certain food sensitivities. When you, when you write a book, you're trying to appeal to everybody. So they kind of have a manual in their hands. Um, and so when this first came out, it was a really revolutionary way of looking at food. Um, I do find that when it comes to uh, the acidic foods, the meats and grains, he's pretty spot on. I think over time that, that diet uh, in terms of those meats and grains has really kind of, uh, for the most part, upheld itself. But we're really influenced by the environment we live in. We inhale pollen that creates, um, that alters our immune system. So when you look at fruits and vegetables, if a fruit or vegetable is native to that area that you live in, you're probably going to be more inclined to be more tolerant of it. But there's food and then there's how our body is digestively wired in our microbiome. The organisms in our gut, they have their own DNA. 
They have their own intelligence. They group in social groupings and they're going to dictate that they'll trump whether or not, you know, your blood type, uh, they'll trump your blood type. So if somebody's producing too much methane gas and they don't tolerate, you know, avocados or sweet potatoes, doesn't matter what your blood type says, that's going to trump it. Okay, let's open it up to another question. Um, hi, Laura, what do you think about gluten and dairy-free diets for kids not having an allergy to either? Is having either dairy or gluten occasionally a setback in overall wellness? This is a great, great question. So um, when, we, when we talk about food, we have to talk about the quality first before we talk about what has to be eliminated. And then of course, somebody's personal constitution. So um, gluten has become an inflammatory food. Um, and so when we look at inflammatory foods, we have to think about how often should somebody have it? And the quality is certainly going to create a, a better tolerance to it. So kids, Kids in general have stronger immune systems, which means they're more resilient, um, which typically means, again, if a child is healthy and their digestive system has no real issues, for example, if a child has constipation, gluten and dairy are gonna probably add fuel to that fire. But say everything is normal with that kid and you wanna make sure that on something that is inflammatory, that they're having it with the highest quality as possible. If you increase the quality of the food, you can increase the frequency, but if the quality is really low, then the frequency has to be lower. So I did a whole podcast on this about food on the spectrum. That's kind of how I like to, to think about it. You know, McDonald's hamburger bun, that's on the lowest end of a gluten spectrum. But, you know, a homemade with an ancient grain, uh, that's going to be at, a, at a, a less inflammatory, higher quality on a better end of the spectrum. I think we have to be really careful with our kids how often we're restricting them. I think it's my personal opinion. I'm a mom to three kids. What was more important to me is that I taught my kids the always food, the sometimes food, the almost never food, the never food, and then vacation eating and, you know, what we're going to eat before a sports competition versus after with your friends, because we do the primary reason in this country that we eat is for socialization. We can't go anywhere, including church service now and not have, you know, coffee bars and um, it's integrated into everything. So we have to take that into consideration. And sometimes it's more important to teach our kids how to be responsible about the things they're putting in their bodies. So we set them up for success when they're going to be on their own in college. If it's a bubble that we restrict everything that's bad, that's like anything else in, in parenting. Sometimes that's gonna, that bubble doesn't always um, create resiliency uh, being able to navigate challenges and adversity. So sometimes it's kind of important to go, 
we're going to do this, but this is why, you know, um, but that the foundation that you're constantly really reinforcing, we eat vegetables, we eat food, we eat real food, we do that all the time so that when we go on vacation and we're in a situation where we want to try this restaurant or this one, um, and there's less restrictions, then the foundation is really, really strong. And that means that their immune system is strong. And that if, if a child has a reaction to it, that's part of the, that's part of the conversation. Well, this is why we don't do this all the time. Okay, good question. Uh, sugar, that's the big one. So sugar, when sugar was first, I love the history of sugar. It's really interesting. When sugar was um, kind of discovered, if you will, um, it was used as a drug. It was used in slavery. It was used in warfare. Um, the same way that you see kind of historically in guerrilla warfare that they're using other narcotics. Um, so sugar was, was a tool to um, really manipulate mental health and uh, behavior. And so at some point it hit mainstream and we don't even think about it as a drug. We think about it as a staple and it's not a staple. Uh, and so we have to kind of going back to that other idea of always food. Sugar's not an always food. If sugar isn't always food, then it's going to have consequences somewhere down the line, whether that is behavioral. In kids, it's typically behavioral. It can be mental health uh, by the time they're in puberty. But serotonin is mostly produced in the gut, and it provides a level of mental health, anti-anxiety, um, and people with disruptions in serotonin and, and, and dopamine, they can experience more anxiety and more depression. So we're not just what we eat in our digestive system, we're what we eat in our brain. Our brain is neuroplastic, it's, it's spongy. And, um, and like literally we need, like our digestive system, we wanna eat food, and it turn over in 24, 48 hours, and the things that we don't use be evacuated um, through our elimination system, uh, because that's how we, it's one of the immediate ways we deal with inflammation. Well, our, our brain actually does that too. Um, I think it's one of the coolest things that our brain will shrink while we sleep. So literally, it's like um, sleep creates a squeezing on the sponge and then the inflammation is supposed to um, leave that sponge and enter into the cerebral spinal fluid where it will eventually find its way into our elimination systems um, but when we're overwhelming our systems with inflammation and you can call it you know processed food sugar sodas artificial ingredients when it's not it's not clean and the body can't keep up with it um it just builds up in the system you know even things like alzheimer's we're looking at many different kinds uh it has to do with that there's so much plaque and inflammation 
that not enough can can exit uh, when that sponge gets squeezed. And so the body starts to create more plaque to try and create a barrier to it. And that's when we have problems with transferring information and memories. But, you know, sugar is a significant mood um, regulator. It, it has an addictive side to it, again, because it's playing with those neurotransmitters. So as parents, we need to decide good boundaries, good limits. Um, again, the things that are harmful uh, that we put into our body. Um, I kind of have conversations so that I'm setting my kids up to understand alcohol, right? How to drink responsibly. We want to teach our kids how to eat responsibly. Um, question, we've got another question here. Going into yet another, whoops. Going into yet another pandemic fall in a few months, what are the main areas? So um, what are the main areas we can focus on to stay healthy? Okay. It, a couple things about viruses, um, because if that's what we're talking about when we talk about pandemics. So, Viruses are constantly changing. They are much more fluid than uh, bacterial infections. Um, so a virus, when it enters its host, is going to adapt to that host's body and immune system within 15 minutes. This is why something like COVID has been fairly complicated and confusing, why some people have no symptoms, why some people wind up in the hospital. And you're really also talking about the predisposition that the host is in prior to infection, right? So going back to that inflammation and how we push inflammation out of the body, if what we're doing doesn't allow our body to filter and eliminate inflammation, basically we're pouring way too much lighter fluid on that fire, we can't get it under control, then the environment that the germ enters is already too wounded, basically. And so when the immune system is dealing with a high level of inflammation and it can't regulate itself to the baseline, then a, a viral infection can have kind of a heyday in adapting itself because you already have high activity in inflammation, you have a confused immune system, and the nutrients that become that military. So um, definitely listen to the podcast that I did about the immune system on the military as a military operation. It is one of my favorite analogies that I use to help people understand. We eat food that contains nutrients that eventually becomes the soldiers that fight that fight. So if you want to talk about what we need to do to get, get healthy, you know, take basic good supplements that you can't get enough of just from eating like vitamin D, um, and then make sure that you're eating as clean as possible as a foundation so that when inflammation comes to you in a variety of different ways, including illness, your baseline is, is ready to support that. 
Good question. Do you think, you know, COVID's been around now for a few years now, but forms of COVID actually existed in the 1960s. Um, you know, it's just that this one was so aggressive. But what also happens as a virus moves through um, the planet, it becomes more contagious. So it's faster moving, but it also loses its umph, if you will. It becomes less serious. That's just the natural progression of the way a virus moves through the environment. Um, summers, you know, heat, extreme weathers don't always help our immune system. So we have to be even more considerate of our inflammatory load in extreme temperatures. You'll also see a trend in the immune system, cold and flu season, right? It begins right around October, right before Halloween. We have that extra sugar through the holidays. We eat extra sugar and then, you know, Valentine's Day, Easter. So we have this window where people are sick on an ongoing basis. And it's really, if you, if you kind of look at the way everybody, the population's immune system moves through the increase in sugar. It, it's really kind of interesting. I mean, sugar definitely suppresses that immune system. Um, it does it significantly based on the amount that we do. And so, you know, definitely not only that baseline, but when you get sick, when you get sick, you got to take those inflammatory foods out to um, not overwhelm your immune system. You know, eat as simple and clean. There was a reason why chicken soup was an, an old wives' tale. It was about, you know, chicken, vegetables, broth, removing all the cakes and breads and cookies and whatever else that just suppress the immune system's ability to be uh, on, the, on its top of its game. Can you help me understand uh, car carbohydrates um, oh. and just the sugar issue? I'm not sure I understand how many carbohydrates a person's supposed to have, like per meal, per day. And then how do you know, like they say Cheerios is good for you because it helps reduce cholesterol. But then you look at it and it's like 29 carbs. I don't know what to do. Like, what does that mean? Only one gram of sugar, but 29 carbs. Because I know those carbs are turning into sugars. So. Good question. Okay. So let me make sure I'm writing some of this down so that I don't. And if I miss something in my explanation, definitely circle back around. Okay. Carbs. So the macronutrients, the three main categories of food are carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. If we look at the way the Krebs cycle works is our digestion moves through uh, carbs, proteins, and fats. That's kind of the direction it moves in to break down our food. Carbs are very dependent on quick bursts of energy to burn them off. So if we eat more carbs than we can burn off, we don't really even effectively get to the proteins and fats, okay? Carbohydrates that don't digest become visceral fat. And that's the, the fat on a, a body that's much harder to burn as a clean fuel. Good fat 
like essential fatty acids, we burn that pretty efficiently, um, but it is the visceral fat that gets stored. So it's not always a, a clean, it's not a black and white question of how many carbs. Kids are more active, athletes are more active. You have to make sure that your carbs equal your energy output so that you actually utilize those carbohydrates and get into utilizing the protein and your fat. As we age, our metabolism slows down. So we need kind of less of everything to complete the whole energy cycle of converting food to nutrients and energy. It's why, you know, people have problems with their weight as they age when they might not have when they were kids. So you always kind of have to look and go, does my activity level justify the number of carbs I'm doing? Or look at your body and see if your weight is stable or going up as you age. So what are carbs? The good carbohydrates that are really low in even natural sugars, have the, they're the darkest and they have the most amount of nutrients. Blueberries, blackberries, all those berries, they're the lowest number of carbs. And carbs is actually what we're measuring is all the sugar kind of molecules, the glucose, the fructose, um, the sucrose. Um, so that's why it would, you know, protein is protein, fat is fat, but carbs has many elements to it, many types of sugars. Um, so you want that alkalinity, that anti-inflammatory of those dark, dark colors, and you want, the, and you have more wiggle room to eat more of those because they're really low in carbs. So you take something like those dark leafy greens. If you ever experiment with measuring your carbs on an app, you're going to find that things like blueberry are lower carbs. Bananas are really high in carbs. If you get something like, you know, bread, it's even higher. Uh, if you get into alcohol, even higher because the sugar concentration in those foods are even higher per, per gram per molecule. At, and so that's where you need the, the anti-inflammatory alkalinity of those really color-rich carbs. They also run the immune system because they're rich in antioxidants, um, natural killer cells, vitamin uh, D, uh, all those, we don't, nutrients are color, they, they just are. So if you're looking at your total carbs, most adults need either less carbs or more downtime to process the carbs they're eating. So that's where the whole idea of intermittent fasting has come in. Our bodies actually during sleep go into fasting because melatonin, it's a natural hormone, it suppresses insulin. Melatonin's released during darkness. So during darkness, we're not digesting. So if we're not digesting, that's something to really watch. Um, if you want to extend that fasting window, it gives your body more downtime to deal with the food that you are eating, or you want your carbohydrates to be able to be used during that time. Did that answer the question about what is carbs and how do you think about them? 
to the person that asked. Yes. Okay. So, um, Cheerios. Let's go ahead. Yeah, it helps um, kind of understand because you're saying our carbs are really our fruits and our vegetables that we need. The good carbs, yeah, good carbs. So, more so than our Cheerios. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, what to do to kind of get a good grasp on which direction I need to be heading. Yeah, I mean, the problem with process, okay, so you take something like Cheerios. So we're moving into a more intelligent consumer um, when it comes to food. And we're much more as women um, and men too, but we're more health conscious. We want, we want to understand food. So the marketing on these foods are gonna lean into that. You know, the word natural in the front, the law says that it only has to be a certain percentage to to use that word on the front of a label. So it may not be 100% natural just because we see the word natural. If it says no artificial ingredients, that doesn't mean it's natural. That means it contains no artificial ingredients. So we, we have to really understand what's happening in packaged and processed food, how to navigate the difference between what is packaged and what's processed, right? So if you turn over the box, if something's packaged and you want to know if it's processed, turn the box over, read the ingredients. And if you know where those ingredients are sourced, then it's mostly packaged and not processed, right? We can go get, um, we can go into sprouts and get um, sourdough bread in, a, in the bakery section, that's packaged compared to going into, you know, a, a regular grocery store and walking down the bread aisle and all that stuff's going to sit there with dough conditioners in it um, so that it doesn't lose its, its softness. Um, you can buy a, a bread that says no high fructose corn syrup in it. Doesn't mean that bread's good for you if it's got chemicals to keep it preserved. So that food on the shelf is already designed to slow, be slow to break down. So that is even gonna butt up against a slower metabolism, right? So that's the quality of food. If you're going to use your carb allowance on bread, the fresher the bread, the, the more that bread is gonna be turned over in your digestive system versus something that's already you you you're already set up to fail before you even have that so i mean i haven't looked at a cheerios label in a long time but most of the time when i work with people with high cholesterol it's the, it's their it's not cholesterol foods like meat and eggs that is the reason their cholesterol is up it is the sugars it is the carbs it is their is navigating their carbs at some point in their aging process, cholesterol is an inflammatory substance once it reaches a peak. So most things in our body, if you imagine we have these buckets and they fill with certain things and we need them to fill with certain things to do certain things. So like cholesterol is meant to regulate hormones. Um, it's uh, meant to protect the brain. So everybody needs their cholesterol at a certain level. When the bucket overflows, then the liver is just making an inflammatory substance to keep up with the amount of inflammation it has. 
So when I work with somebody, I'm looking specifically, what is the inflammatory burden in their diet? Most of the time with cholesterol, it is the carbs. It is the amount of sugars that they're doing that just overflows that bucket to the point where it can't be controlled. But you take the medication for high cholesterol, the statin, the statin just pushes that cholesterol back and your body can no longer regulate what the cholesterol it does need to protect the brain, which is why the side effect of a statin is dementia. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul as opposed to, because your, your body's still, you're still throwing inflammation at it. You're just using a medicine to control one of the warning signs. And that inflammation is still there and your brain can't keep up with it and your body can't keep up with it. So be careful on those that those marketing techniques that are used to appeal to a new generation of a food consumer that doesn't understand that um, doesn't understand the labeling. But look, if you find yourself, you know, in a hotel and they're doing that breakfast bar and you grab those Cheerios instead of the Fruit Loops, you're at least moving up the spectrum. See if you can add some blueberries in it to kind of get some anti-inflammation there, you know, if you're stuck doing that, that kind of thing. There's always a way to make something better and make it worse. And if you find that you really, you know, you really like your Cheerios and make sure you're getting a salad in at lunch so that you're kind of, again, running that interference and making a really strong baseline. But the idea that Cheerios will remedy cholesterol, that's just not, that's just not true. So red light has been clinically studied to improve uh, hormone levels, especially testosterone. As we age, you know, we, we have a, a depletion of hormones. There's a lot of food that we eat that are hormone disruptors. They create uh, confusion because, again, they're inflammatory. And things like, you know, fake estrogens um, can confuse the way that the hormones regulate. Um, it's, it's not for everybody, the red light therapy. Uh, I do think it needs to be combined with some good herbs. Uh, if you're looking specifically at like, um, improving testosterone levels, then you might want to look at an herb called tribulus. I, I think it's one of the more effective, um, testosterone adaptogens. Um, but I don't know that I've seen anybody get their testosterone levels normal with just red light therapy. And of course, some of them are really expensive, you know, so you just have to be careful on, um, on which one you decide. Do you have a baseline idea of how much it would cost to get started uh, working with you on some of these issues? Oh, yeah. So, okay. So I'm really about helping people um, get a plan that they feel comfortable with, that they'll be compliant with. And so that has to fit a lot of different things, right? Um, that has to fit their willingness to make those changes, their budget. So in, I have the opportunity in being very, very customized to navigate that. So for example, um, the, fir the first cost is my initial visit. It's an hour, it's up to an hour long. 
Uh, sometimes it's a little bit less, but you're going to come out of that with a treatment plan and some strategies that I'll make some recommendations based on, you know, hearing how you want to do this, prioritize it, what are your main concerns, uh, you know, and then with that plan in place, then we move into the next step. So if somebody wants to do a hormone panel, um, I use Sinesco Neurolabs because I do the functional hormone panel that shows neurotransmitters, uh, cortisol, DHEA, as well as the three estrogens, progesterone and testosterone. I think women's health, when you just go have just your hormones tested by blood, it's very uh, narrow and in a way I find very dismissive of how complex women's health can be. So it's really important to understand if somebody's testosterone is low, that they may not want the option of doing even bioidenticals or doing pellets. They may want to know, well, is your testosterone low because your DHEA is low? And is that low because your cortisol is high? And is that high because you have no excitatory neurotransmitters because your dopamine is is really, really crashing. And then is that happening because of supplement? I mean, of diet, we need to bring supplements. Is that happening because of uh, something else, um, a genetic component? So it really is about how to prioritize what you wanna do. I definitely have people come in, they're like, I just wanna work on my blood sugar and my cholesterol because my doctor says I need medication. And they just want to do those things. They don't want, and I have some people come in and they're like, um, I don't want to get COVID. And while there's no, you can't put a, you know, a bubble around yourself, you can certainly, again, make that baseline really strong. So you can come in and say, you know, this is what I need to focus on. Um, I need it to be in, this is my budget for the next six months. How would you suggest prioritizing that? And then, you know, we go from there. Usually with, with if somebody needs functional testing, there's still some options to experiment with some supplements. I mean, I've been reading functional testing for so long now. I know certain symptoms are gonna show up as certain levels on certain tests. And so, you know, sometimes people are like, I really need to see it. And if I think there's an infection, we, we have to find out what it is. We can find out how to, how to treat it. It'll, it'll get cultured. But, you know, if somebody's saying, I don't, you know, I can't afford to do testing, uh, but I need the best opportunity to, you know, get out of this state, then I'm going to recommend, you know, how to prioritize that with the least amount of things. Because the big problem is, is that we're not, we, we're not heard in healthcare, right? That's the biggest complaint. We go to a doctor and they're, everything is a machine and we're being moved through there. People need to be heard. And when you listen to people, you can help them take charge of their health because they get to participate in the navigation of that. I mean, I have people and they're like, I need to know if my supplements are working. And we do a full uh, functional panel. It's around $400 but they're spending a lot of time, money and energy in supplements and we need to know if that's working. So to feel empowered that you can participate in taking charge of your health um, 
there's a much more successful compliancy at the other end of that, especially if you can have somebody like myself as an educator really explain it to you, you know, um, if we don't eat antioxidants, we don't have the army to fight the virus. It's, it's that kind of, you know, simplistic uh, strategies that we need to have so that we can navigate and make commitments to those things. I comment? Yeah, please. So, um, so thank you so much. You, you helped my son tremendously. And um, the other day he reached out and said, Mama, I need you to help you. Aww. And so he begged me to reach out and get some help. And so it's a long journey. It's been a long journey. I'm caring for my mother-in-law that is um, dementia. And my mom, that's diabetic and high blood pressure, and her dementia's gotten really bad. Mm. And then, of course, having a your precious child that's so sick, yeah, you know that you're afraid you're going to lose them. And then I find it real hard to to put a value on my own life. Yeah, we somehow, you know, we we, and it and it comes up through multiple generations. Where as moms, we think our job, the primary job as a mom is to be, is to sacrifice ourselves. You know, and, and what we don't realize is our primary job as, as a mom is to take care of ourselves. Um, but we don't live in a, in a culture. And again, through the years, the way women and mothers have been, you know, treated it, we're not in a culture that really prioritizes that it can feel too selfish. It can feel like, you know, oh, I've got to do these things first because these other people are more important. Um, but yeah, how wonderful that your son said, you know, you've got to take care of you. I need you to take care of you. Um, and oftentimes when people see their, their parents start to face um, health consequences, you know, it can be really awakening as to, uh, you know, how do, how do, we prioritize, you know, if there's a family history of something, then it's pretty important to lean into that first, especially it, because anything with a family history means either we have learned those diet and lifestyle habits, right? That's the epigenetics, which is amounts for more than 70% of anything, or we do have the genetic risk, but again, the genetic risk is only going to be anywhere from 0.5% up to 30%. It's still going to be the environment we put our genes in on a day-to-day -day basis that makes up the rest of that risk. So if you've got family members that you're seeing multiple where inflammation is in the brain, then you know we need to look at your sleep, because that's where inflammation, that's where your brain squeezes that sponge, right? We need to look at, um, you know, the plaque, the way that your body, you know, are you eating enough? One of the ways that our brain brushes plaque is with blueberries. You know, they're even testing blueberries in the disease, 
the Center for Age-Related Diseases. So, um, you know, looking at cholesterol, things that affect, that eventually have an impact on the brain. But we can make that, that field very narrow if you have the most concerns about things that are going on in, in your family around you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, question here is, um, I see two questions, so I will answer both of them. I'm considering doing a hormone panel. Um, would that include reviewing supplement use as well? Um, or is that a separate test? Okay, so when we when I do the hormone panel, there are supplement recommendations to adjust the hormone levels, right? So uh, sometimes again, it, they're connected. So there's a prioritizing. If low dopamine is causing high cortisol and then low DHEA, we don't need to fix everything with necessarily with multiple supplements, it may mean just going for the heart of why the trickle down effect is happening and then and then kind of seeing where somebody is feeling. Or we may need to, if the, if the deficiency is so great or the excess is so great that we need to do a short round of supplements. But if you're looking, if the question is, so, I mean, I review that supplement treatment plan that somebody has and I make adjustments in it um, with the hormone panel. But if you're looking at the big, big panel that shows you if all your vitamins are working or if you, you know, need something different, that's a neutral valve. And so that's a separate test. So for, for women, I definitely recommend that hormone panel it's been a game changer for everybody that's done it, both men and women. I definitely recommend that if you have any mental health issues, if your doctor's trying to give you progesterone and you don't know if you need it or an antidepressant, make the commitment to that panel and we can wait on the neutral valve. Um, and the neutral valve can be staggered. You know, once you do that, it can be done, you know, every couple of years. It's a, it's a big test. Um, and unless there's major crisis going on, you know, somebody with chronic migraines, it's too complicated without, without that, that test, if they don't respond, um, you know, Im immediately. So I would say if you're trying to prioritize testing and you're considering a hormone panel, you haven't done it and you already do supplements, that's the one to commit to. Okay. Okay, I struggle with constantly spending so much time in the kitchen to make healthy foods. This is a good one. And um, the way that I kind of navigate it is because, yeah, you don't want kitchen fatigue, right? Um, is that I usually spend time in one thing. So, for example, if I'm going to if I'm going to make chicken, then the sides are going to have no no time for me. So that salad might be sliced cucumber. Um, you know, if I'm baking the chicken, then I'm going to get the potatoes in there so I can make use of the, the oven at the same time. But again, I'm not prepping anything. 
I decide I'm going to make this big salad, then make that, that might be with, you know, leftover chicken or something that, again, I toss in the oven like a baked salmon. So you probably want to think about the pieces and maybe move them around a little bit um, because all healthy foods does not have to take time. It, it takes no time to grab a banana uh, or even slice it and sprinkle some cinnamon on it. Right. So um, what does take time is if you want to make, you know, slice that banana, put it on an almond pancake, but you know, maybe look at, you know, like my kids know that I'm only going to make almond pancakes maybe once a month and I'm going to make maybe a double batch and it'll go in the freezer. So maybe they'll have it twice a month, but um, look at the way you're organizing that so that you can cut down on that, on that time. It can be done. Yeah, you know, here I find other cultures um, to be really interesting. So um, it's called the French paradox, right? Um, and the French really have, everybody's always confused about, well, why can they eat cream and butter and cheese and bread? And um, it's, and, and part of it is when they do those things, it's from scratch. They, they don't, you're not, it, it's just a whole different way about thinking about inflammatory foods so that we can have those things. So when I go in my kitchen and I'm going to spend time on something, um, it's going to be because I want to enjoy that. And I don't want to pay the consequence for just you know, grabbing it off the shelf of a, of a grocery store. Well, there you have it. That was our first open Q&A. Uh, really excited to have done that. And a big thank you to everyone that participated. And again, you know, everyone's health is really unique. And I have the privilege of really uh, learning the uniqueness of, of people's health and really helping them customize uh, plans for themselves. So we hope that a lot of the information is of interest and value to you. Remember, it is for educational, informational purposes. Um, do not use anything you've heard in a podcast uh, to give yourself medical advice. All right. We will hopefully see you at our next episode of Health Matters with Laura Kopech.